July 3rd, 2022. I want to talk together this morning about how does halakha change as reality changes. Now, when I talk about reality changing, I'm not per se referring to an actual change in reality. It might alternatively refer to a changed perception, understanding of reality. Whereas 1,500 years ago, we may have understood reality in one way. Perhaps today we understand it in a different way. In several, in many circumstances, halakha was determined at its onset by the understanding and sometimes outdated understanding of reality. The question in turn is, as time progresses, as our understanding changes, as perhaps the actual physical reality changes, how should or how does alternatively halakha change? Now there are, to be certain, different approaches to this matter. I'd like to advance one specific one that I find the pattern within the traditional halachic sources and to give a little bit of perspective and maybe a certain understanding and acceptance of such an approach, which might be to several or many of the uh, participants in this morning's class a little counterintuitive. But I'll, I'll even preface it with a, a short story. I think I've told this story once or twice. Uh, my grandmother, Alea Shalom Rose Beda, that's my father's mother, uh, she, on the night of the Seder, whenever we did the Desach Adash Be'ahav and Elo Ayesim Makot and Dam, Sephardeh, and so forth, as we were pouring out wine, as I imagine many Syrian families do, maybe many, maybe many families pour out wine. My in-laws, my Ashkenazic in-laws, they use their pinky to take wine. Anyway, the tradition, what do you do, Ronnie? You pour it. You pour it, Ron? No, no, pinky, right? So pouring out wine, I'm in between each one of the mentions, dam, sefardea, kinim, and so forth, my grandmother would, who was not uh, literate even in Hebrew, she would always say, umasilan. Yeah. We didn't know what she was saying. You know about umasilan. We didn't know what she was saying. It was later in my grandmother's life, when she, perhaps she wasn't even as clear, but I'm certain that her response later in her life would have been the same that we had earlier. We were sitting around the table, and grandma was doing the masilan, and we turned to one another at some point and we said, so why, why does grandma say that? So I said, of course, she's saying that although God brought these makot upon the Egyptians, umasilan, he should give redemption, salvation to us as he did back then. He discerned, he distinguished between the Egyptians and Am Yisrael. My father, ever the humanist, had a different approach to the matter. He said, that's not how I understood it. He said, saying umasilan, although God took down the Egyptians, God is taking down human beings. We're, so to speak, pleading with God Treat them with a certain hasala, umasilan, you should be masil them, save us, but at the same time, don't do such terrible things to our enemies. At that juncture, we all turned to grandma. I said, grandma, so why is it that you say umasilan? Grandma shrugged her shoulders, maybe raised her arms in bewilderment and said, so my mother did, so my grandmother did. Now, in that circumstance, which we all died of laughter in the moment, is, 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 a, is a paradigmatic circumstance because it defines a tradition of sorts. Now, that's not a halachic tradition, certainly, but a tradi tradition of sorts. And the question as a result of realizing that we're not even certain why this is being practiced is whether we should continue doing that. And I mentioned this all in context of my grandmother passed away a year or two after that, and we sat at the seder, and each one of us out loud said, Umasilan, until today, that's what we all do. So maybe you'll say it's silly. Harari, get past the nonsense of the previous generations. You don't even know why they were doing it. Alternatively, and I mention it again as acute 
remnant of a, an interesting and peculiar uh, custom of sorts uh, to understand and to value when we do and practice things as a family, as a nation, as a community, there's a certain reality which takes form. There's a certain existence which becomes reality. The explanation is quote unquote almost on the side. Whereas our knee-jerk response and explanation to why, why we do what we do is, well, there is a reason, and that's what causes or caused us to do this. What that circumstance, I think, reminds us of is, sometimes we just do things as a family, as a nation, as a community. Maybe there was an initial reason, although we don't know that reason now, it's not a reason per se, and if anything, there might be a counter-argument against and making certain that we continue doing so. That's the onset of this class. And so I have three case studies which I'd like to discuss and develop briefly together with you for understanding an altered reality, a shifted perspective, an understanding. And then the question amongst the rabbis, either implicitly or explicitly, how do we, how should we react? The first is nitilat yadayim in the morning. Why do we wash our hands in the morning? So it's a long-standing halakha. It's mentioned in the Gemara in at least two or three places. Nitilat yadayim in the morning. Why nitilat yadayim in the morning? Shohan Aruch and Siman Dalid, here in source number one, first and foremost states, clearly, Yerhatz yadavi varech al nitilat yadayim. Wash your hands and make the berachav al nitilat yadayim. Less known fact is Shohan Aruch afterwards makes clear the berachah should precede the nitilat, something we don't practice generally speaking. Okay, what's that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Next, Sa'if Bet. When I have my parenthetical comments, so that's when you get all excited. Sa'if Bet. You should make certain to, to uh, pour water over each of your hands three times. What's with three times? So it's in order to remove this evil spirit which resides on your hands. Where did he come up with that? Well, we'll find out in a moment. It's in source number two in the Gemara on Masechet Shabbat. Sa'if Gimal. Lo yiga' biyado kodim netila lapeh velo lachotam velo lauznaim velo lainaim. Prior to washing your hands in the morning, you should not, says Shohan Aruch, touch your mouth, your nose, your ears, or your eyes. Any of the open apertures on your face should not be touched. And Gemara goes further, Shohan Aruch does as well. Any part of your body should not really be touched before doing Netilat Yadayim. What's the rationale, logic, and reason for that? That doesn't really define for us, but he's basing himself... On a Gemara in source number two, it's a Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, Daf Kof Amud Bet, going into Daf Kof Amud Aleph, refers to, you'll see it at the end of the second line over here, a evil spirit known as Bat Horin, the daughter of freedom. What is an evil spirit? Not fully certain to me. What I can tell you is the Gemara is mentioning this Ruach Ra'ah as the reason for doing the Tilat Yadayim, as the reason that surrounds why we don't touch or shouldn't touch ourselves before doing Nitilat Yadayim. And the reason, furthermore, the Gemara says, you should do umakpedet achir chot yadav, the last words in source number two, shalosh be'amim. It's necessary, it's important, say the rabbis, to wash your hand three times to make certain that you don't touch your other body parts prior to Nitilat Yadayim because the underlying reason for Nitilat Yadayim in the morning is. Ruach Ra'ah, this evil spirit. 
That's the statement of the Gemara. Of course, that already, and I'm not in sources yet, already begs the question of what evil spirit are we referring to? Do we know of such evil spirits today? If we can't understand it, what happens to this halacha? We're already touching on the basis of what I want to discuss in this class, but it goes further than that. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, in source number three, and Ayin Zayin Amudbe talks about if a person were to potentially touch their eyes before the netilat yadayim, it might cause damage to their eyes. Tosafot and others realizing that this damage does not appear to be prevalent point out and audaciously state, Masha'olam en nizharin achshav bezeh lefisheen otaruach ra'a shora be'elu hamalchiyot. Says Tosafot, this evil spirit is no longer residing or doesn't exist in our kingdoms their convenient way of dealing with something they have difficulty understanding from the Talmud is by stating either environmental differences or time, temporally, something changed. But effectively, Tosafot are clear, Ruach Ra'ah is not operative any longer. Of course, it begs the question in turn, not to the practices per se that surround it, but even Nitilat Yadayim itself. Perhaps there's no reason any longer for Nitilat Yadayim. After all, there is no other, to the best of my knowledge, in Talmud, mention for a reason to do Nitilat Yadayim in the morning. I'm not talking about before eating. I'm not talking about before prayer, per se. I'm talking about in the morning. The Gemara seems clear. The reason is Ruach Ra'ah, Tosafot, being the first to state, First, for our purposes, to state there's no longer this Ruach Ra. In fact, if you search far and wide in Hilchot Tefilah Harambam, you'll find no mention of washing three times. The Gemara says three times. Shohan Aruch told us three times. What was the logic for the three times? Because the Bat Horin, Ruach Ra'ah, has a way of disappearing, not affecting if it's three times. Lechem Mishneh, one of the major commentators on Mishneh Torah Harambam, here in source number four in Hilchot Shivitat Asur, points out, wait a second, Harambam never mentions the three times. Perhaps, he states quite clearly, it's because Harambam was not of the opinion that there is this Ruach Ra. Again, he leaves open whether it once existed, should it be explained uh, metaphorically, or alternatively, and for our purposes, just as good, it's no longer in operation. Lechem Mishneh, classical commentator to Mishneh Torah Harambam, makes this point. Uh, there are several other classic Mefarshim, a contemporary of Shohan Aruch, Yamshel Shelomo, Rabbi Shelomo Luria, in his commentary to Masechet Hulin and Yamshel Shelomo, makes this claim as well. We don't have Ruach Ra any longer. Maharab ibn Habib, in his book Tosefet Yom HaKippurim, on the Gemara and Masechet Yoma, and Afayin Zayin, has a long, has a lengthy explanation along these lines as well. Ruach Ra, according to many of the traditional commentators, is no longer a relevant reality. Well, that being the case, I ask you again, A, with regards to doing Netilat Yadayim, B, with regards to all the laws that surround Netilat Yadayim, should we, are we to continue them in a time and age where for eight, nine hundred years we've been stating that the objective, the underlying principle and purpose is no longer relevant? 
So it's in this light that I personally read the words of the Rishonim. Because Rashbar ben Aderet, an important Barcelona rabbi from the late 13th, early 14th century, Rosh, an important first German, and then Toledo in Spain, 13th and then early 14th century rabbi, each of them provide different reasons for Netilat Yadayim, reasons which were never mentioned in Talmud. The Gemara seemed quite clear. We read much of it together. I referred to it, the rest of it in source number two. It's because of Ruach Ra'ah. Instead, suggests Rosh here in source number five, the reason we wash our hands in the morning, it should say, Because when you go to sleep, your hands will unbeknownst to you, without full cognizance and consciousness, touch your body parts, and as a result, they're dirty. There's a certain filth on your hands. You have to wash your hands for that reason. Rosh provides that reason in his commentary to Berachot and Perektet. Why? where that reason come from? I'm convinced he needs to supplement what's already mentioned in Talmud. He's dealing with a reality wherein this is a long-standing tradition. Lehavdil mamash, elef havdalot. We're saying umasilan already at the seder. It's already a reality. We turn to grandma. Grandma's no longer. Why are we saying it? We can't repeat. We don't want to stop doing it. This is what has become def- definitional of who we are. This has become the standard practice of Jews during the medieval and prior the ancient time period. As a result, says Rosh, even, he doesn't state this explicitly, even though Ruach Ra might not be operative, let me find a supplemental reason. Alternatively, Rashbar, Bishelomo ben Aderet, in his She'elotu Tishibot, Chilek Aleph, Siman, Kof Sadi Aleph, here in source number six, gives two other reasons. Either he suggests, because every morning, Hadashim Labekarim, we wake up, we are, so to speak, a new creation every morning. We thank God for returning our soul to us. As a result, when there's something new, oftentimes the renewal is brought forth through water, very often in Judaism, when we seek and search for something that's renewed, uh, both in, generally speaking, in purity realms, but in general, we envision it as a washing out with water, says Rashba. That's why we wash our hands in the morning. Or, he says, we're about to pray, we're about to set forth on a day of worship of God, the same way the Kohen would wash his hands prior to Avodah and the Mikdash, so too we do as well. Yes, Ron. There's a difference over here. You're making Berakha al So there is a basis for Nitilat Yadayim. They're just searching for the reason why. That's right. That's right. I'm just asking in the app. Like um, I don't know. You're right. I said Lehavdil a few right. times. But the reason I brought my grandma is because my grandma's an easy vantage point. Because everyone, the reason I brought that was purposeful. That was all planned out. Everybody has family customs, to the best of my knowledge. Everybody has family customs that we're familiar with. And you ask, why do you do it? Because my father did it. I was, a Friday night, just a, a week ago, someone said to me, you know, Rabbi Shema stands up for Kaddish on Friday night. I think it's appropriate that you do so as well. So that's very interesting. In the book, Derech Yeres, it says that the Halib is not to stand up on Friday night. I said, I said, well, what's the reason, they asked me. I said, well, it's a Kabbalistic tradition. Even though you don't stand up, perhaps throughout the week for Kaddish, on Friday night, maybe for Barachum, maybe for Kaddish, you do stand up. 
I said, is Rabbi Shammah doing this because of Kabbalistic reasons? So another person who was standing there said, no, I don't think so. I think he explained, I think he said that they used to do it on 60, I didn't speak to Rabbi Shammah, so this is all unverified. They used on 67th Street stand-up, which is interesting in and of itself, and he thinks it's appropriate for greeting and accepting Shabbat, not per se because of the underlying quote-unquote sources and basis. But that's why I'm, I'm mentioning those as customs and as something which we practice already. And instead of disbanding it, I, I'm, I think Harambam did. I think he will be that vantage point of, ultimately speaking, he does want me doing it. I think he's going to adopt a different reason and as a result shift the three times. Shift maybe the no touching, although he does mention it. But what I'm mentioning for more than anything in our context is these traditions, this tradition is a continued one. This is one which is continued. I've mentioned last summer we did a class on Mitzvot Min HaTorah. Mitzvot Min HaTorah, I'll just give you one quick example. Mitzvot Min HaTorah where the logic and rationale quote unquote seems to have uh, expired. Uh, for example, Basar Behalav according to Harambam. For example, a good five dozen Mitzvot according to Harambam prohibitions which are all to distance our, ourselves from Avodah Zarah. What are we supposed to do in today's day and age? If the lot, I mean, we don't have, I know we could repurpose Avodah Zarah and turn it into money or electronics or you name it. But when it comes down to we don't have Avodah Zarah in the classical sense, certainly don't have pagan rights where eating Basar and Behalav together, what are we supposed to do? In that context, it's a lot easier. We're dealing with the words of God. My suggestion is, and always has been, we keep as the principle, the practice, and the explanation, since it's the word of God, will and is supposed to evolve. I'm suggesting a step further over here. I'm suggesting even in the rabbinic domain, even in the communal acceptance domain, we continue very often. Instead of disbanding a tradition, we just find different reasons. And you might say, but that's archaic. You might claim, but then you're getting stuck in the past. I argue quite the opposite. I argue this is what we do. This is what we're familiar with. Now there's a responsibility. The responsibility is Rashba and Rosh. The responsibility is to how do you make this relevant to yourself? That's the responsibility. That law will continue. Does that mean the law won't change at all? No, no, no. It doesn't mean the law won't change at all. For example, many of the severities which were once dominant with regards to Nitilai Yadah, Oh, no longer so. I gave you one example on the page in source number seven. Seiman Aleph or Dalit has the following claim. He wants to know if someone were to touch food prior to Netilai Adam, did they therefore invalidate the food? If you walk into a bakery by extension and you're pretty certain Jews, let's say, haven't done Netilai Adam and they're touching your bread, the Gemara seems to say beer that's touched without Netilai Adam is a big problem with it. It says, No, we're not going that far. It says, Ideally, so don't touch the food. You touched the food already? No, we're not going to go that far. Well, why not? One of his major reasons is because Ruach Ra is no longer a reality. But one second, you told me I'm still practicing. You told me I'm doing three times. That's right. I'm continuing this as a practice, but the severity of its initial iteration has now transformed a bit, which means to say, again, this is the claim. This is the direction in my mind that halakha is purpose to be for us. And people will sometimes get very annoyed. Halakha is supposed to be halakha. It's supposed to walk with us. It's supposed to move with the times. It is. That doesn't mean that the principles are shifting. The principles are the umasilan. The principles are the standing on Friday night. The principles are washing your hands every morning. The question is, so what are you making of that? That each generation needs to determine. That each generation. Now, if it's absolutely indiscernible, I can't find a reason, there's nothing that touches me as relevant any longer, 
We will find times where halacha does disband. Just this past Shabbat, I didn't put it on the source sheet, and Siman Ain in Shohan Aruch, he cites from the Gemara, the beginning of Masechet Ta'anit, that you're not supposed to talk when you eat. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, says Maran Hachida about 200 years ago. He says, but everybody violates this, both the scholars and the lay people alike. He says, I've traveled across the world. I think he literally says that. I've gone to kind of, he talks about Turkey and Israel and Hebron. He says, everybody always talks during the eating. And he's very bewildered. And so there's a suggestion, maybe it's only when they were leaning that you didn't want to talk because it would mess up your trachea, your esophagus, when you're, and then they brought proofs against us. So then why are we not doing this any longer? In that circumstance, to the best of my understanding, the reason is, because we can't really uphold it any longer. We can't find, we were never able to find the rationale, and it was very inconvenient to eat a meal, if it ever was done, without eating. But, nine times out of 10, to the best of my knowledge, we are going to, instead of disbanding, we're going to state, somewhat unequivocally, with power and with courage, this is no longer our reality, but nonetheless, we're continuing the practice with altered vision and understandings as to why we're doing it. The next example that I'd like to bring forth for you is perhaps the more famous example, the more famous, perhaps the most famous example, and that is lice on Shabbat, the issue of lice on Shabbat, killing lice on Shabbat. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat and Daf Yod Bet, found in source number eight, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat and Daf Kof Zayin, not on the source sheet in front of you, makes the following bold statement in the name of Bet Hillel, and that is that you're allowed to kill lice on Shabbat. But wait a second, nitilat neshama, taking the life of anything, is prohibited on Shabbat. Why are you allowed to kill lice on Shabbat? The Gemara says because the only things that you're not allowed to kill are similar to the animals that they killed for construction and upkeep of the Mishkan. In the same way, the animals that they killed for the construction and upkeep of the Mishkan were reproductive organisms. They were animals which needed reproduction in order to bring forth life. So too, those are the prohibited animals and prohibited beings to exclude anything which spontaneously generates. For example, says the Gemara, lice. That's, that's a fascinating statement because scientifically today we know it as a truth. There's no such thing as spontaneous generation. It's not to say that the rabbis weren't speaking truths of their time, their understanding of it. Aristotle writes about spontaneous generation. I was convinced until a few years ago that maggots were the proof, uh, proof of spontaneous generation. But ultimately speaking, it's just not the reality. If it's not the reality, will that be in the case? What should the halacha today be? Shohan Aruch in source number 10, at a time, 16th century, at which most people were already familiar. I don't know about his own familiarity, but people were familiar with the fact that spontaneous generation, meaning there's no reproduction, there's no eggs that are birthed, there's nothing other than uh, just comes about, was not a reality, is not a truth. Shohan Aruch, nonetheless, and Siman Chin Zayin writes explicitly, you're allowed to kill lice on Shabbat. That's what Shohan Aruch is posek lahalacha here in source number 10. It took just a few hundred years later in the Italian Renaissance for a beats Haklam Pronti in his encyclopedic work, Pahad Yitzhak, to raise the issue. But wait a second, gentlemen, this is not the reality. The Gemara might be speaking about a scientific reality that they believed in in their time, but today we have better microscopes, better ability to see lice, and we realize lice do generate through reproduction. 
what should we now do with the halacha? He initially sets forth and describes how he thought it should now be asur, it should now be forbidden. Understand that by defying the science of the rabbis, we lead to a humrah that you can't kill kinim, lice on Shabbat. If you accept their words, then you have a kula that you can kill the lice on Shabbat. One of his rabbis and colleagues has an angry statement to him, Rabbi Yehuda Briel, gets angry at him and pahad yitzhak lampronti says, I was only doing this lehumrah, I was only suggesting since they don't actually spontaneously generate, as a result we should abstain from killing them, but I'm not going so far as to say we're changing halakha who would lead to leniencies as well, but you know something, he doesn't say it explicitly, Rabbi, if that's the way you want it, I don't need to get into this issue. That's an interesting perspective already. It's another one of these circumstances where what we're now looking at, again, it's a little less trenchant than Nitilat Yadayim, but it is a reality that we've accepted. What are we to do now with an altered reality, with an altered perspective on reality? Chacham Vadya Yosef in source number 12 has, for me, a well-known response to Rabbi Kassin, Rabbi Jacob Kassin, Alav HaShalom, in 1977, with regards to Rabbi Shema. He says he heard that Rabbi Shema is spreading word to some of his students, Rabbi Moshe Shema, some of his students, that they're not allowed to kill lice on Shabbat, quote-unquote. In other words, that when there's a conflict between science and Hazal, we're supposed to veer in the direction of science. He has a statement, we can just read those words for a moment, the second line here, and the quote that I gave you, but the, toward the end of the line, Gam Yosef starts off the Tisha by saying, in my eyes as well, this is wondrous, I can't believe it. He goes on to, as he is wont to do, cite many sources along the lines of the rabbi's words are enduring and they're right about science, and then he brings a conflicting approach, quotes it specifically from Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, and he concludes the Tisha by saying, we should be mechazek Rabbi Shema, he has me al-mili even though, in his opinion, that's not the majority majority opinion. Rabbi Shema, just a few years ago, in a different context, this came up in a class, and uh, there was no secrets. I wasn't uh, just reading, but uh, I think one of his uh, son-in-laws was in the class, so told Rabbi Shema, and we talked about it afterwards. He says, you know, there's a different actual teshubah. So he said, I said, you're kidding me. So he said, yeah, this teshubah is not what Rabbi Kassin received. I said, but it wasn't written to you. It was a letter about you to Rabbi Kassin. He said, you think Rabbi Kassin didn't give me a copy of it? That was a fascinating thing. So I said, could I see it? So he said, yeah, I'll try to get, I'll try to, get it to you at some point. His son-in-law walked over and said, you'll never see that. He said, we've never seen it. We heard all about this. It was three, four months later, I got a letter in the mail. I got a letter in the mail from Sephardic uh, synagogue. I thought it was a bill for the summer. Instead, it was this teshubah, and it's the altar teshubah. It would be interesting to compare the two and see what changed and why it changed. Nothing significant to the best of my knowledge, but there were changes. It was interesting in and of itself. It means that sometimes when people publish their response, it's not per se, which makes sense, what they actually sent. It was edited, it was changed for one reason or another. Well, that all being the case, Chacham Vadya Yosef over here does not seem to be very easily understandable because his claim is, so we're steadfast, we're holding on to the words of the rabbis, can we, should we defend such an approach? In source number 13, that's Hacham Vadya Yosef's book, Alichot Olam, he cites from his contemporary. His contemporary was Rabbi Al-Yashiv, Rabbi Yosef Shalom Al-Yashiv was his contemporary. They were on Din together, and later on they were separate. Rabbi Al-Yashiv was the Ashkenazic posek of the generation at that time period. He says, my contemporary, Rabbi Al-Yashiv, said that you shouldn't kill these lice on Shabbat. 
says Chacham Vadya Yosef, I disagree with him. But here's the matter, here's the issue I want to address together with you in this moment, and that is, if the science is telling us one, the reality we have, quote unquote, changed, our understanding of reality changed, should that impact halacha if we're to be consistent with the approach that we've been advancing until now, the answer should be no. It should still be permitted to kill those lice on Shabbat. How can I make a claim for that? Obviously, we'd need to restructure the rationale over here. We'd need to redo the reasoning. This one's a bit further than we talked about earlier, but over here, the direction would have to be one in which this continues as our practice, as a permitted practice, but I need a new reason why. How can I come up with a new reason Source number 14, the book Mikhtav Me'eliyahu. Mikhtav Me'eliyahu <coughs> is the writings of Rav Dessler. Rav Dessler <coughs> lived first in Europe, then in England, and then in Israel in Bnei Brak, toward the end of his life. Interestingly, he is in the Haredi world very much respected as a scion of the Kelm tradition of Musar, but he as well, he was the Milamed of in the household of Rabbi Salomon Sassoon. He had a very close relationship with Rabbi Salomon Sassoon. He was the personal uh, tutor of Rabbi Salomon Sassoon. So he had a real Sephardic, rationalistic uh, <coughs> involvement. They were very close and he impacted him a lot. Anyway, Rabbi Dessler has the following suggestion. <coughs> Rabbi Dessler here in source number 14 suggests that in halakha, the operating principle with regards to how we determine halakha always is based on the, the sight of the naked eye. Thank you. The naked eye, which means to say, for example, I think Ronnie just recently was talking about this, if you deal with water with bugs in it, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a question, the water in New York has bugs in it, has some sort of other organism in it, does it, that, copopods. Uh, does that therefore invalidate, make the water not kosher? You're not allowed to drink bugs, you're not allowed to eat bugs. So the question is, if they're visible, that they exist, we accept. Are they visible or not? We determine, it's not so hard, just take a look, just draw some water from the, lots of water from the faucet and realize you don't see anything there unless you put it under a magnifying glass or a microscope of some sort. Well, that being the case, over here as well, the suggestion of Rav Dessler went as follows. When it comes to lice reproducing, the reason the rabbis and the scientists of that generation believed that they didn't reproduce is because to the naked eye, they don't. To the naked eye, they just come about. That, therefore, is the determinant of the halakha, which means to say, quote, unquote, they spontaneously generate, we can say today. In other words, again, it's not negating the practiced law. It's not going against what we had as our halakha because we found a rationale for defending that practiced law. It's not even a far-fetched one. You know, people from time to time come and ask me about the batim of tefillin, if there's a little nick in it, if there's something. The Gemara says it needs to be a perfect square. The perfect square means to the best of our ability. Sometimes you see pictures of people looking at etrogim with magnifying glasses. That's absolutely not nonsense. Magnifying glasses are not halakha. You're not supposed to use a magnifying glass to look at it. You're supposed to look at it with the naked eye. That's the way halakha works. Always, as a result, the claim over here is even though this is not defending that the rabbis knew it. That's not the defense. The rabbis didn't know this, but we can, 
And it's not our responsibility to do, but in my opinion, it works very cleanly within a system that this has been the practice law. This is what defines who we are. Let's now just redefine the reason why we're doing it. Let's have a new perspective. Let that evolve instead of the practice evolving. That would be our second example. So what have we suggested thus far? Suggestion number one was the nitilat yadayim as an evolving reason and rationale for why we're doing it. And suggestion number two is the permissibility with these lice on Shabbat, if we are to take and Rabbi Shemo has a different approach to this matter. Instead of the strong-minded hacham of Adyah saying, no, if the rabbi said it, well, then that is the scientific reality. Instead of that, let's allow for a different perspective for it. Keep the practice, but instead suggest a different ra- logic for why we do so or why we don't do so, depending on the circumstance. I'll bring you to one last example. That's a, that's a challenge. Now you're going to speculate a reason other than what the Talmud That is exactly it. I'm saying I have precedence for doing so, the Rishonim did so. And one of the things in this particular case is that killing the Kidim is allowed in the Mishnah, and the Gemara is speculating the reason. It's nice to find a, a, a case where the Halakha and the reason are together, either both from the Mishnah or both from the Talmud. I gotcha. This one's even better. You're saying because it's already from the Mishnah permitted and the Gemara is providing the reason, so we're giving a different reason. Okay. I'm saying even if the reason was provided, if it became the practice, we continue it sometimes. We just provide a different, or we, we tweak the reasoning. Um, it's an interesting perspective. Um, it could be. I mean, you know, it reminds me of, for example, in, in specifically that direction when it comes to uh, gilui, when it comes to water, ma'im migulim, which is mentioned in these sorts of contexts as well. So the Gemara talks about water which is left exposed and people are not around it. There's a problem. Potentially snakes went and entered their, their, their poison into it. So Tosafot, in that context, in the same Tosafot, but the one we were reading earlier, they said that's the reason for gilui as well. And so the question is, is that only in France and Germany? Is that they say, as opposed to in Israel per se? Uh, not so simple. Uh, today, again, it's today. If you went to Persia, time of the Talmud, placement of at locale, do you find snakes that inject poison into the water? So there has been an attempt to uphold that one as well. Mentioned more than once. There's all sorts of stories with me and 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 this this uh, circumstance. I was convinced nobody actually kept of Gilui until I found out 90% of our community does. But anyway, uh, that there has been. There's a book by a, a rabbi. His name is Yoshua Anbel. He wrote a book called Torah Shba'alpeh just a few years ago. He suggests he found some sort of worm-like thing that puts in some sort of not poison that's going to kill you, but it will hurt you. And said so maybe that's what they were referring to. It's an interesting, ingenious type of suggestion. You could make such such claims. It was only in Israel. Along those lines, the question really is: Is in Israel today do we find that in Israel in the day of Shohan Aruch? Did you find it? And Shohan Aruch doesn't distinguish between Israel and elsewhere. He doesn't give you that as his rationale. He just quotes the Gemara. But again, it's along those lines with regards to what has been done along the, uh, in, in context of many of these things. The last issue I'd like to just address briefly together with you is uh, eating fish and meat together. Of course, the Torah says, Lo tevashel gedi The Mishnah in Masechet Chulin interprets it as the three-time mention, threefold mention, you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to benefit. And you're furthermore not allowed to cook basar and halav together. There's no mention in the Torah about eating meat of animals together with fish. 
Is there any prohibition? Where should the prohibition emanate from? There's a Gemara in source number 15. Binita is a type of fish. It was fried together with meat. Says the Gemara initially, if the fish was fried together with meat and then eaten with dairy, that would pose a problem. Then the Gemara says, wait a second, Mor Bar says, and he's late, but Ravashe's last generation of Moraim, his son says, even if you're to eat that fish that was fried together with meat, just with salt, it's problematic. In other words, on its own. Why so? What's the issue? Mishum de Kashya. The davara her because it's dangerous. It's bad for the other thing. The other thing is like today lehavdil when people don't want to say the name of an illness. Certainly in the Ashkenazic world, you say yenamachla. You say the, the disease instead of saying cancer. People say I got the disease or something like that. The Gemara says davara her. What's davara her? Sarat leprosy. So the Gemara quite clearly is comfortable stating whether they observed this or heard this or not. And Morbara Vajeh has this claim that if you eat fish together with meat, it is potentially leading you on the path to leprosy. I don't know about you, but we haven't seen all that much leprosy in recent generations. Certainly not uh, meat and fish eaters. Uh, maybe it's only Jews and not non-Jews, and Jews have always been scrupulous. Not fully certain, not fully clear. Interestingly, Harambam, where he would have mentioned his Mishneh Torah source number 16, completely omits this. Harambam only has an issue if the fish was fried, fried with the meat and then eaten together with kutah, with a yogurt of sorts. That's a problem. Even on its own, he completely leaves it out. Hatam Sofer, source number 17, picking up on this, says, wait a second. Do you realize what just happened? Gedolei harofim, of our tradition. Harambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Do you realize what he's telling us implicitly? If you read between the lines, he's telling us that there's no problem to eat meat together with fish, and he's the doctor. He's the one who knows the science. That's Hatam Sofer. What's that? Surf and turf, indeed. As Hatam Sofer makes this claim, makes this claim that, that so once before we read his punchline when he goes beyond it, that's a shocking statement from someone like Rabbi Moshe Sofer. Hatam Sofer of Pressburg was renowned, known, famous for Hadash Asum and Torah. We don't do anything new. He's fighting against any of these newfound mixing science and Haskalah and involvement with the world. Over here, Shockingly, he has this bold claim. I remember the first time I read, I couldn't stop laughing. I said, Hatam Sofer, of all people, is veering in the direction of Harambam. But then he quickly regains his colors. He quickly says, but we have a Masoret. He quickly claims, but this is what we do. He says, it may have even been what's called the Davar Shebiminyan. The rabbis may have decreed this and said this is going to be a practice irrespective of its reason. He says, but nonetheless, Minhagavotenu Torah, this is our tradition. This is what we're going to practice, but not with all the severities. So the third time we're seeing that type of mention. And like, we're accepting this. We're going to continue it. Could we find the rationale? It's going to be very hard over here to find the rationale. Rationale in this context for today's day and age. I had a teacher in ninth grade in high school who told us about when he lived in Israel and once they thought there was tuna fish, he was in the army and they thought it was meat and they started biting into it and it was filled with all sorts of bones and it endangered their life. So he said to us, I always looked afterwards to see if anyone states and said, that must be the reason why the rabbis say you can't have meat and fish together because it's dangerous. You can have bones which you won't realize because you didn't really thought it was meat and it was really fish. 
It's a uh, clever, clever interpretation. Okay, I don't know that anyone states it, but he stated it. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a strong rationale to this, other than minhag avotenu. And as a result, we will find leniencies. We'll be find the disbanding of this one, uh, whether you want to say sadly or reality would have it. We don't. This is a continued tradition, even though there is no sarat that's endemic to this act any longer. Uh, th- did Harambam maintain this way? Not fully clear to me what Harambam did on this sort of matter. He leaves it out of his Mishneh Torah. It's possible he did. Tur, as a matter of fact, in source number 18, Tur, of course, is the son of Rosh, Rabbi Yaakov. He writes in the name of his father. His father was so careful about this. He had separate dishes for meat and fish. He made certain that in between he would wash his hands, he would clean his mouth, he would make certain he didn't come close to touching meat and fish together at all. Is that to be continued to that extent? Shohan Aruch says absolutely. Source number 19, source number 20 says, Shohan Aruch, you know, I don't know what the halakha is with regards to fish and meat. Don't eat it together, don't touch it together, wash your hands in between, separate utensils, and so on and so forth. Is that still the reality? Do we need to have separate utensils for meat and fish? Does anyone you know have separate utensils? A whole separate set of dishes for meat and fish? That's the halakha in Shohan Aruch. However, that is quote-unquote a neglected halakha. I will tell you, in addition to Harambam in this context, in today's day and age, there are more voices along this line, and it might be a breaking point. There's a book of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Melamed, Rabbi Melamed in his book, what's it called, Penine Halakha, someone showed me this a year or two ago, in Penine Halakha, and there's a Dati Leomi rabbi, prominent rabbi, lives in Israel today, he makes the claim that since there is no Sarat, and we've never, for the last several hundred years, ex- experienced, and we've done the medical research on this, and we've spoken to scientists, and there's no danger, even if you track this long term in eating meat and fish together, he has a result states quite clearly you could eat them together. That's generally speaking minority opinion. Instead, we've accepted it by and large as a tradition without the same severities. For example, Darkei Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Israelis quotes from Hagahot Sha'are Dura that you don't need to wait in between, that you don't need to wash your hands in between, that you don't need to use separate utensils, just eat them separately. Uh, so that's in the Ashkenazic world. Peri Hadash, Rabbi Chizkiyah Di Silva in source number 23 suggests that since we use t- utensils today, since it's not on our hands, since we're not actually mixing it, you don't need to wash hands any longer, you don't need to do any, which means to say we've maintained by and large as a community and as a nation. This law, this custom as well, we've just tweaked it with regards to its severities. I've heard it quoted, I've seen it quoted, I never saw it in his writing, that Hacham Vadya Yosef, along the same lines, you see, when it comes to eating at the same table, bazaar one person and halav the other person. If I were to be uh, drinking my coffee and eating my cheese sandwich, and uh, Rani over there is having his, uh, I don't know, schnitzel, and uh, whatever, uh, I, got, I have to do this one better, and, and kishka, um, so if that, if that were the case, so we would need what's called a heker. We would need to put something that doesn't belong the ta- uh, belong on the table in between the two of us or on the table. That's the halakha. It's in Shohan Aruch at the beginning of the halachot of Basar Behalab. What about when it comes to fish and meat? Well, it would stand to reason. We generally say that sakana is more hamur than isur. That when it comes to a matter which is dangerous, we have to be more severe. And I imagine once upon a time they had heker. It's quoted in the name Hamvadeh Yosef. Since it's not really a sakana any longer, we don't 
don't maintain such a sakara. What about that sauce? I'm not I'm no connoisseur, no no barbecue connoisseur, but there's something called Worcester sauce. Did I pronounce that properly? Worcester. Yeah, so it's, 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 from what I understand, some sort of sauce which has some sort of anchovy, some sort of fish in it or something like that. The question is, can you do that with your barbecue? Apparently it tastes delicious. So a lot of you, maybe your heart's beating, you do it already. OU does give OU certification if there's below a certain percentage of the fish in it. If it's below 2% or 1.5%, which they've evaluated as the six, as 160th. Now that's far from simple, but I'll tell you why they accept it. It's far from sim- simple because although we say a bitul is generally appropriate when we're dealing with basar behalav, for example, when it comes to sakana, something that's endangering you in the eyes of the rabbis, we there's a mahloket, we're not so certain. Taz, it'll be David Segel in his commentary to Shachan Aruch says, we don't do bitul. What's more is, it's what's called bitul lechatechila. You're crafting it in such a way, it's not that it fell in, you built it as such. Is that appropriate? So the OU, to the best of my understanding, is comfortable over here. What's that? But they are comfortable with you using it to the best of my knowledge. As I remember reading the Teshubah from Rabbi Belsky, even if you made it with meat. And the reason is because they're comfortable doing bitul lechatechila. They're comfortable doing bitul sakana because their assumption is this is not sakana. Which means to say, although the practice has continued, although I'm comfortable with that, many might not be comfortable with that, with regards to its details and its severities, we've moved. We've moved, but we've maintained something. It's to be determined what sort of relevancy we can find in that domain, because my objective is to find the relevancy, but to briefly summarize what we've discussed, again, the principle, and then the specifics very briefly. The principle goes as follows. We, as a Jewish nation, we, as a Amt, as a Shomrei Torah, Misfot, have many practices, both practices that are explicit in the Torah, and those that were developed by the Hachamim, and then by the generations thereafter, the Hachamim Shebechol Dor Vador. The question is, with regards to each one of those domains, and realms. How are we to practice? What should we be doing when the reason, the stated objective for that mitzvah, for that isur, is no longer relevant, when the reality or our perspective and understanding of reality has changed? That's the question. Generally speaking, we're not fully certain. We have different options. When it comes to a mitzvah from the Torah, great. When it comes to a mitzvah from the Torah, it's very clear. Seems to me very clear. The example I gave earlier was the basah behalav. I'll just very briefly, you could go back and listen to the class again. It was, I, I mentioned as well in that context, according to Harambam, korbanot. Would korbanot be a reality in the future? Because his opinion is that korbanot from the Torah is a concession to humanity. Would that be an operative in the future? My suggestion is if you read Mishneh Torah, it seems to clearly state it would be. What does that mean? It means that the reason might change and must change and evolve over time, but the practice is maintained. What about when it comes to rabbinic domains? What about when it comes to halakhot or along the line of minhag, to the ruach ra'av netilat yadayim, to the uh, second uh, example we discussed in this class as well, uh, to the uh, killing the lice on Shabbat, and lastly, to eating fish and meat together in each of these circumstances. Now, that's not to say that every circumstance will be the same. That's not to say that there aren't situations where halakha, I gave you one example, the eating during the meal, there are many other examples, but 
by and large, in my opinion, nine times out of ten, I'm very comfortable with this. I'm very excited about this. We maintain the practice. I love that we continue saying umasilan at my table. I love that we debate the reason and that my reason will be different than my children's reason and their reason in turn will be different than the grandchildren. We're continuing something while attaching ourselves to the past and linking that to the future while admitting and encouraging a shifted perspective on why to do it. And each of these examples have just been case studies, specifics, with regards to where that's been done, in my opinion, appropriately so. Not to say that others, Rabbi Shema, I imagine on each of these would disagree. I don't, I think on Kinim is where it came up. I think he would be consistent on each of these and say, well, if I can't match the rationale and the logic that underlies it to what we're doing, so then why should we continue doing that? I think... If he is, or, or he certainly is, well versed, he would point to Harambam in our last example as the reason to. I think he might point to Harambam in the first one for Nitilai Adam, unless he says, let's continue to, the question will be a consistency over there. It would be difficult. Because would he argue that, okay, that's the sort of question that you'd have to ask. So the question we posed at the onset is, how does halacha change as reality changes? In my approach, in my understanding of the operative foundational approach of halacha, the answer is the practice remains albeit shifted with regards to its details, but the reason, the relevancy is what evolves with that change in perspective and reality. Baruch Adonai